This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology. Are you or one of your colleagues doing great neuroscience? If so, then we encourage you to apply for the prestigious Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology, an international prize which honors young scientists for outstanding neurobiological research based on methods of molecular, cellular, systems, or organismic biology. Submissions are due June 15th. Visit science.org slash Eppendorf to apply today. Welcome to the Science Podcast for January 23rd, 2015. I'm Suzanne Bard, filling in for Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, we have Meghna Sachdev up first with some online news stories, and then we hear from Mirta Hassig about the changing atmosphere around Comet 67P as part of this week's special issue covering new data from the Rosetta spacecraft. Support for the Science Podcast is provided by AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science, advancing science, engineering, and innovation throughout the world for the benefit of all people. AAAS, the Science Society. Now we have Magna Sochdev, producer for science. She's here to talk about some recent online stories. I'm Suzanne Bard. My four-year-old would really love this first story about hidden treasure in poop of all places. Sewage treatment plants have long had to cope with toxic metals from manufacturing that gets mixed in with everything else, including the contents of our toilets. Well, some practical-minded environmental engineers at Arizona State thought they'd quantify just how much these metals might be worth, including gold and silver. And it's a pretty stunning sum. What figures are we talking about here, Magna? Well, so a city with a million people in it would probably produce about as much as $13 million worth of metals, and 2.6 million of that uh, would come from gold and silver. So we're, we're talking about substantial sums. Wow, okay. So is there a way to mine all of this sludge for gold without getting your hands dirty, so to speak? They haven't actually figured out exactly how this could be done or um, the economic feasibility, but there are a few cities who have started. So there's actually a city in Japan that's tried extracting gold from its sludge. That's the goo that's left behind after they treat sewage. And I think they're getting about two kilograms of gold for every metric ton of ash that's left after burning the sludge. So that's actually more gold-rich than the ore that comes from some mines. But so far, they haven't done this in the United States. But as I said, they're still working out questions of economic feasibility and whether it's basically going to be cheap enough to do this that they can get a profit at the end. And how do precious metals end up in sewage in the first place? Who's contributing to this? It's not just you and me who are flushing gold down the toilet. It's actually mostly manufacturing and industrial contributors. So things like mining, electroplating, jewelry manufacturing, even things like catalysts that they use for the automotive industry. All of that is what's contributing to all these metals that we're finding in sewage. 
Metals aren't the only thing that we're getting out of sewage. What else are people trying to reclaim? Some researchers are trying to get us to start thinking of sewage as less of a liability and more uh, of a resource. So some sewage treatment plants are pulling phosphorus and nitrogen out of sewage, which can be used as fertilizer. There's also a Swedish treatment plant that's testing the feasibility of making bioplastics from wastewater. And so there's all sorts of things we can probably pull out of our waste. Our next story also concerns hidden treasure, but this one is slightly cleaner. When Mount Vesuvius exploded in 79 CE, it destroyed Pompeii, but it also rained down ash upon the nearby town of Herculaneum, burying a library and reducing its papyrus scrolls to blackened husks. They were rediscovered in the 18th century, but scholars had no way of reading the scrolls without destroying them. Is that the end of the story, Magna? Not at all. So physicists have come to the rescue, and they've figured out how to read the scrolls without having to unroll them at all. What they do is they use a particle accelerator to beam very powerful x-rays at the scrolls. And the difference between how fast these x-rays pass through the scrolls tells us where we've got just the blackened scroll and what parts of them have ink on them. And so slowly but surely, we're able to reconstruct these scrolls and actually see what's been written on them. Well, so that seems like nearly an impossible task, but solved with modern technology. What have they been able to make out so far from these papyri? Well, they've only managed to make out a few words so far, but they have reconstructed a nearly complete Greek alphabet. So things are coming along. And have they learned any other specifics about these texts? Yes. Well, what's so cool about this is that we get to reconstruct the scrolls pretty much exactly as they were written. So that also means we get to see handwriting. And at the moment, it looks like the handwriting on one of the scrolls came from a famous Greek philosopher called Philodemus. So that's very exciting. Wow, it's amazing you could do handwriting analysis on such old texts. It seems like a wonderful window into the past. It really is, and researchers are hopeful that this new technique is going to open up the possibility of reading many more old documents. Lastly, we have a story about the discovery of eight key genetic variations that may play an important role in human memory and motor control. The findings come from the Enigma study, short for Enhancing Neuroimaging Genetics Through Meta-Analysis. Scientists from over 30 countries contributed MRI scans and genetic data from 30,000 people to the study. What were the scientists looking for, Magna? The scientists were looking for genetic influences that help determine the size of key brain regions. And other studies were just too small to uncover these very subtle differences. But since this was really just such a massive effort, they were able to uncover these eight single-letter changes. And what were these differences and why are they so important? The variations they found were linked to the size of key brain regions. And when it comes to brain tissue, more is definitely better. They were able to identify variations that affect the hippocampus, which is associated with memory, and the caudate nucleus and the putamen, which are both associated with motor control, and the putamen is associated with motivation as well. So these are key brain regions, and now we know a little bit about what explains the variability between the sizes of these regions in different people. And do these genes play a role in neuropsychiatric disorders? That's actually the next step for researchers Many of these eight genes are actually active during brain development, and they're now going to look at whether or not they contribute to neuropsychiatric disorders like schizophrenia as well as autism. 
So doctors and researchers are looking forward to finding out more about the relationship between genes, brain structure and behavior. And at this point, are there any practical uses for this information? Can it help patients? Doctors aren't going to be using this for diagnosis anytime soon. But the more we understand about how genetics influence the brain, the better we're going to be able to treat some of these more difficult conditions. Okay, what else is on the site this week, Magna? Well, Suzanne, we have a story on anti-cancer drugs and how polar bears are adapting to climate change. And for Science Insider, our policy blog, we have a story on science in President Obama's latest State of the Union speech, as well as the U.S. political war over climate change, which is heating up again. So be sure to check out all of these stories on the site. Thanks, Magna. Thanks, Suzanne. Magna Sochtev is a producer for Science. You can check out the latest news and the policy blog, Science Insider, at news.sciencemag.org. Next, it took 10 years to get there, but in August of 2014, the Rosetta spacecraft began orbiting Comet 67P, and the Philae lander touched down on the comet's surface on November 12th. This week's special issue of Science features new data from the mission, detailing the comet's composition, shape, and other features. Mirta Hassig and her colleagues took a first look at the very thin atmosphere around the core of the comet, called the coma, and found a surprising amount of variability. Comets still contain ice and dust present in the original solar nebula, and therefore grabbed a unique glimpse into the conditions when our solar system emerged. It's kind of like a cosmic freezer that preserves the material of the early solar system. Comets are basically the leftovers from when the planets formed that are stored far away from the sun and therefore contain the very building blocks of our solar system. Can you give me a brief overview of Rosetta's overall scientific goals? Rosetta's primary science objective is to learn more about the solar system formation by studying a comet close up. To do so, Rosetta will do a global characterization, study the solar-wind interaction, measure the detailed composition of the coma and the nucleus. On top of that, this will be the first mission to study these topics over time and explore the comet's evolution. So your team studied the coma of Comet 67P. The coma surrounds the core or the nucleus of the comet, is that right? The coma is basically the gas that is released by the comet's nucleus. The nucleus is basically the whole icy, dirty snowball. So the coma can be looked at as kind of an atmosphere. And tell me a little bit about this instrument, Rosina, that you use to measure the gas and water composition of the coma. It consists of a pressure sensor and two mass spectrometers. The pressure sensor measures total neutral density and the physical properties of the neutral gas. And the two mass spectrometers are designed to complement each other with a high mass resolution, high sensitivity, high time range, and a large mass range. We measure the composition of the coma. That means we analyze what kind of molecules, atoms we have in the coma. You were looking at how comets might change over time across a day or even seasonally. Do comets have seasons in the same sense that we have seasons here on Earth? The seasons on 67P can be similar actually to Earth. So it depends on the axis and how this is pointed towards the sun. 
So the southern hemisphere winter at the moment, that's where we basically have no sunlight or only very little sunlight, while the northern hemisphere summer is where we have mainly sun all day long. We found that the comet composition varies over the rotation of the comet. With the complex outgassing of the comet, where seasonal effects cause the temperature variations just under the comet surface. In the paper, you describe the comet as having kind of a rubber ducky shape. Did the rubber ducky shape contribute to the variation that you saw in the composition of water and gas in the coma over time? The rubber ducky is kind of two balls that are together. So we have a smaller lobe, which is the head, and the bigger lobe, which is the body. So if we see the rubber ducky from one side, water and CO2 increase. When we go behind the ducky's body, basically to the underside of the ducky, we block off the neck region, and there we see no water anymore, but we see an increase in CO2. And then when the ducky turns to the other side, we see an increase in water again and still some CO2 coming off from the nucleus. That's on the course of one day. The seasonal effect then is because the underside of the ducky or its breast part is kind of permanently in shadow at the moment. That's the seasonal effect. So therefore, the temperature there might be significantly lower than on the other side, around the neck region of the comet. And therefore, we see mainly water coming off on the summer side of the ducky and CO2 coming off on the underside of the ducky. And you also found evidence that the coma of the comet isn't homogeneous. What do you mean by that? That means we see different compositions actually in the coma depending on where the spacecraft is. So that means that we have parts of the coma which are water dominated and we have parts of the coma which are CO2 dominated. And why is this finding important to our understanding of comets? The heterogeneity in the coma certainly opens up a whole bunch of new questions about the formation of the comets and the solar system. So I imagine it must be pretty exciting to be part of a team that gets to study a comet in such an unprecedented way. What's the best thing about being a part of this research? For me, I really feel fortunate to be part of this great mission. I really think it's a big thing. When I started my university degree, I sort of noticed that Rosetta was launched. I didn't have any idea about Rosetta before. And the fact that Rosetta is going to a comet, orbiting a comet, and finally land on it. I mean, that's just an exciting mission. And for me to be part of that and actually sit down here in San Antonio and looking at data from a comet, which is more than three times away from the sun as the Earth, and look what's going on there. kind of can't describe that, but I, I really love that. And I feel it's really fascinating to sort of go back and figure out what's going on with that comet and learn more about how this comet evolves and outgasses during his sunward approach. So really, you've just begun to collect data on Comet 67P. What data are you continuing to collect and analyze? Well, the, the measurements presented in the paper are just the first two months, basically. I think we have a lot to do in the future, just in terms of data analysis but also to continuing measuring the coma and the comet itself and how it evolves 
will give us more clues about the solar system formation and also about all other comets because most of the comets measured so far were measured at perihelion. So those comets were not measured during their sunward approach or at least not in such a detail. And that's unique for this mission, first of all. And second of all, the paper doesn't include anything about the landing on the comet. So that will be, I think, the next big news we will hear from Rosetta, that there are results about the landing on the comet. Mirta, thanks for speaking with me. Oh, it was a pleasure. Thank you. Mirta Hassig and her colleagues write about the variability in the coma of Comet 67P in this week's Science, where you'll also find papers describing the comet's surface and shape, the origin of its water, and many other details. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write us at sciencepodcast at AAAS.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and many other places on the web, or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Suzanne Bard. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join.